1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. So good to be with you this morning. As I said earlier, my name is David Bubing. I'm the youth and worship director here, and I will be preaching this morning. So let's dive in. We, we all want to know who we are. Uh, we, we see this starting as young as two or three as our, our small children start to really push to the limits of what their parents put before them, figuring out, you know, what really are my boundaries? And we see it even more clearly with teenagers as they start to wrestle with their parents to figure out what truly defines them versus what things are from their parents. And, and then from time to time, uh, we sometimes see it with middle-aged men as they go out and buy sports cars and try to redefine themselves, remake themselves. And, and all this is because who you are actually really matters. What we're made up of, our, our defining characteristics are incredibly important to us. Growing up, I defined myself as an entrepreneur. I had big plans for how I was going to make my fortunes in this world. Uh, lemonade stands were a very common occurrence out front of our home, and uh, I didn't use any of that cheap powder stuff. I used the concentrate, and my customers could tell the difference. I still remember some friends giving us a box, uh, like a 40-pound box of apples, and I, uh, I took them and I set up shop in front of our house and I sold them to anyone who was willing to buy them. Uh, I'm still not 100% sure if my mom knew that I was doing that. <laughs> but, but I remember making well over $10. And uh, if you ask me, that's a pretty good day's wage for a 10-year-old. Probably my most impressive roadside sale ever is the one that I get made fun of constantly by people who know the story. But if you ask me, the ability to sell a a Ziploc bag full of dirt to a random stranger is not mock-worthy. It's actually quite impressive. As I got older, I used to daydream about the inventions that I would create one day, that I'd be able to retire early and live the easy life. Like I said, I, I, thought, that my, I thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I thought of that as one of my primary defining characteristics. And today, as we turn to this passage of Scripture... Well, see, John say that Christians are all defined by one central characteristic. A characteristic that actually flows from watching our Savior and what he's done for us. We may all have unique, different things about us, although I doubt any of you has ever sold a Ziploc bag of dirt to a stranger, but that's besides the point. We're all unique, and yet 
John is going to show us this morning that as Christians, we are all defined by love. He shows us that's our primary defining characteristic. The primary defining characteristic of a Christian is their sacrificial love for one another. That as Jesus' followers, we're actually supposed to look like the one that we're following. And just as he has sacrificially given of himself for us, so we also sacrificially give to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The primary defining characteristic of a Christian is their sacrificial love for one another. John breaks it out into two points for us here. So go ahead and grab your outlines and we'll get started. You can find your outline in the email that went out on Saturday or if you're watching with us on Facebook, uh, there should be a link in the comments section. Hopefully you're able to have that open and um, take notes as you, as you follow along with us. The first point that John makes in this passage is this. To be a follower of Jesus is to love fellow believers. As we break down this section, we will see clearly that John doesn't mince words. And interestingly, he doesn't say, if you're a Christian, you really should work harder on loving each other. No, the message is clear in this section. To be a follower of Christ means that you love your brothers and sisters. Before I go any further in this, I, I want to give a word of encouragement to you. Bethany Church has been a place where I have regularly seen true love among the believers. It isn't to say that we don't have our faults. Uh, we certainly all fail from time to time. But this place is rich with love for one another. And so I wanted to say thank you for letting us, letting our family be a part of it. Love among believers is central to the gospel message. And that love isn't reserved simply for those who agree with us. In fact, I would say that one of the most radical things about the gospel is how it breaks down barriers between people. The reality of the radical message of Jesus is that what he has done is freed us to be people who, um, in many ways, uh, are different than us, that we can love them. Because at the very core, we're the same. Because the most important thing about us is that we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. That's our central defining characteristic. And when you go back and read a, a passage like Galatians 3.28, I think uh, it's easy to read it with kind of a, a sweet sentimentality without realizing how radical the na na nature of this passage is. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says this. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. His words here are, are radical. They're extreme. I think maybe if Paul was talking to us today, he would say something like this. There's neither American nor Chinese, neither Republican nor Democrat. And, and is there young and old? For we're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's comparison here is extreme, but he says we're all one in Christ Jesus. 
This isn't to say that, that those things about us, those other categories that we may be in, that they don't matter. They do matter. The things that make us up matter. But they aren't the main thing anymore. We're, we're purchased by the blood of Christ. Our primary identity comes from being His. And He has united us together. With that comes a love and a unity among believers that is able to surpass any barriers we face. Love is really the central commandment of the New Testament. And John starts the section by saying, you've heard it from the beginning. (laughs) In other words, don't act so surprised that I'm putting such an emphasis on this. Don't act so surprised that I'm asking you to love one another. You see, John tells us, Loving one another is Jesus' central command. And I challenge you, go back and read the Gospels. Jesus was never shy about telling his people that their lives should be marked by love. As a youth group right now, we're reading through the book of Acts. The early church, the, the days you know, after Jesus' ascension. And the early church took Jesus' command to love one another seriously. It's incredible reading through the book, the stories that that are in there of the love, the sharing that took place, the unity that took place in the church. Unity and love were what marked the early church. And that isn't to say that problems never arose. Right from the beginning, chapter 5 already, we got crazy stuff happening. But again and again throughout Acts, you see that as problems arise, the believers all work earnestly to restore unity together. As we consider or as we go on, I wanted to consider this passage. John 13, uh, 34 and 35 says this. A new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I think this is an incredible verse. Jesus says here that our love for one another, our love for one another is how everyone's going to know that we're his. Consider that. And as we think about the growing turmoil in our country, the anger and the hate being spewed from both sides, I can't help but think about uh, what the world would do if they saw the church handling things radically differently. They saw the church walking in the way that Jesus has laid out for us. What if Christians were able to disagree and yet willingly, sacrificially love each other? I think really amazing things could happen for the kingdom of God in this time. The danger, as I say something like this, is that for, for you listening at home, uh, you, you might do one of two things. You might over-personalize what I'm saying and say, you know, assume I'm singling you out, maybe that this is uh, too direct of an approach. Uh, or you might assume that I'm only talking to the other side. It's them. They need to get it under control. They're really crazy over there. But the reality is that I need to be careful of this. You need to be careful of this. We, we all have to be careful of this. It's so easy to get sucked in to the, the hatred 
and the anger that's out there. But we all need to remember that our identity together in Christ is far greater than our beliefs about politics or or coronavirus or whatever else it is that might get you riled up. Our King has commanded us to love one another. So let us walk in His steps and do just that. As we go further into this section, John goes on here to issue some really serious warnings and some encouragements. After establishing the centrality of the command to love one another, he warns us right off the bat, don't be like Cain. And uh, this is essentially the Hebrew equivalent of someone saying, hey, don't act like Hitler. Like his words here are extreme. But as he goes into it, he actually exposes the root of Cain's hatred. We've been talking a lot uh, in in this series of how our our root affects what fruit is produced, right? And so he shows us the root of Cain's hatred here. And and it wasn't that somehow Abel had slighted Cain in this process or or Abel had, had done something to make Cain look bad. No, he says the problem is that Cain's actions were evil while his brothers were righteous. John is establishing here a clear point that hate flows from a heart filled with sin. Hate is the result of of personal sin within us. It's the result of evil in our hearts. It's not primarily rooted in what the other person has done. And he goes on to say, actually, in verse 13, that because of this, we, we really shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us. It may be easy that as we try to live righteously and and loving of others, it'd be easy to assume uh, everyone should love us, right? Like that, why wouldn't they love us? But it's not true. In fact, even if we live pure lives, we can expect hatred from this world because hate is rooted in pride and self-righteousness and in other sins of the heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones the old British pastor that Jeff uh, quoted a couple weeks ago issued an important warning, though, as we, as we think about the world's hatred. He says this in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking of the section where Jesus uh, said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He, he warns and he says, It doesn't say blessed are those who are persecuted because they're objectionable. Uh, It does not say blessed are those who are having a hard time in their Christian life because they are being difficult. It doesn't say blessed are those who are persecuted as Christians because they're seriously lacking in wisdom and really foolish and unwise in what they regard as being their testimony. So, So we have to be careful not to rejoice in persecution that actually flows from our own sin in our heart like pride. But at the same time, we can rest confidently knowing that even as we live a life of purity, a life of peace for Jesus, it's expected to be hated because hate flows from a heart filled with sin. And and as this is the case, as Christians, we should be able to love far better than anyone else because Jesus has cleansed our hearts. If hate flows from a heart of sin, as John states here, then as Christians, hate is not our native language. 
John goes on and he makes two really bold proclamations. And they, they were so bold, in fact, that as I was working on my outline, I was, I was really tempted to adjust them to be a little bit softer. Uh, they made me uncomfortable. I had to keep reading the points that I put down in my outline and, and, and going back to my Bible. Man, is that really what he said? And if anything, to be honest with you, my outline I think is probably still more gentle than John's words are, but hopefully we can understand it as we work through this together. The, the first thing he shows us is this, that loving one another gives us confidence of our salvation. And, and that's great news. All through this book, he's been showing us uh, tests for us to, to understand our assurance, our faith, uh, to know that we are rooted in Christ. And so again, he gives us this really clear, distinct, and I think primary test of how we can be confident in our faith. We, we, we know that. He, know, he says we, uh, you know, we belong to Jesus, and if we belong to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is working in us, and he's changing us. He's making us to be more like him, and so we should see these results. Growing up, I went to a summer camp every year uh, in the, on the California coast called Mount Hermon. It was the highlight of my year. It was one of my favorite times and still one of my best memories. I got to hang out with one of my favorite con- cousins, Boyd, uh, and, and we spent time at the beach. Uh, there was a huge pool there. We got to swim, water slide, crazy stuff like that. We'd get together. We'd sing songs with other Christians. We'd Listen to the gospel preached again and again. There was uh, boating, every kind of, you know, fun thing you can imagine. And we were out at the coast, so that's pretty great. And it was an incredible time. We were in, um, in the huge redwoods that are right near the California coast. And we're staying in old cabins that were really quite run down. And I don't think most of us would ever consider living in them normally. Uh, I distinctly remember one year we had a cabin that had a tree growing through the floor and the wall. And it wasn't like this cute thing that they planned and like kind of a semi-tree house. It was just that a tree had taken over and they decided uh, it's better to just let things be than to try to <laughs> fix this. And so you sit in the dining room, the kitchen's here, and then right between the kitchen and the dining room, there's this tree growing up out of the ground and right through the wall. And they had managed to seal it off good enough that it didn't leak. And so there you go. <laughs> but one year I remember sleeping out on the, the covered porch of Hawthorne Cabin. This cabin was the ugliest green color you could ever imagine. As I lay on that porch every night, trying to fall asleep, I felt the crushing weight of the question, what if I'm not a Christian? What if I'm not actually a follower of Jesus? What if when I die, I experience ex- eternal punishment? What if, what if I have this all wrong? And hell felt very real to me in that moment. I could see it vividly as I closed my eyes. And though I remember almost nothing from that time period in my life, I still remember this distinctly. It was a painful season, and it didn't just take place at camp, uh, but for some reason I can still visualize my time there. I can still close my eyes, picture where I was laying, and, and think about how I was feeling. And maybe you've experienced something like this too. Or maybe even now in your life you're wrestling this. What if I have it all wrong? What if I'm not actually a Christian? John offers us some really great comfort in this passage. 
He says this in verse um, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And as he refers to brothers here over and over, uh, he's simply using a, a neutral term to speak of all Christians together. But he says, we know that we've passed out of death out, um, into life. And how do we know that? We know that because we love the brothers. We know it. If you love your brothers, if you love other believers, we can have confidence that we are his. We can know it with certainty that we belong to Jesus if we love his people. But John goes on to issue just as strong of a warning. And, and he doesn't mince words here. And this is the point that I kept wanting to change. He says really clearly that hate for one another should cause us to question our salvation. John actually says it even more strongly than that. Let's look at the end of uh, verse 14 and, and then 15 as well with me. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. As John speaks of life and death here, he's, he's speaking of eternal punishment and of life now and forevermore with Jesus. He says if, if you don't love your brothers, uh, you are still in death. These are some strong words. And, and now John's goal is not to cause panic in real followers of Jesus. His goal is to reveal those who do not actually follow Jesus. We all struggle, we all sin from time to time. And, and it's not our love that saves us. We have to acknowledge that it is the blood of Jesus alone that saves us. But if you feel hatred rather than love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, even if it's just a segment of them, John says this, this actually should cause you to question whether you know Jesus at all. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and he has marked you and he is changing you. And if you understand what Jesus has done for you, you'll recognize you are in no place to judge your brothers. The reality is the God of the universe has stood in your place. He's taken your punishment, the punishment you absolutely and rightly deserved. You see, if you understand the gospel, you will live a life marked by love. I really appreciate the question that Jeff has been asking us through this series a few times. Look at yourself a year ago and look at yourself now. Are you growing to be more Christ-like? Do you see a positive trend in your life? Look at yourself. Uh, have you grown to love other believers more deeply in this past year? Even those that you disagree with? Have you continued to forgive rather than to foster hatred? If you can answer those questions with a yes, then John says, praise be to God because we can have confidence in our salvation. We know that we belong to him. 
you can't answer those questions with a yes, then it's time to pray and ask God to reveal the sin that's in your heart. Ask him to change you, to conform you to the image of Jesus, to make you more like him. Or maybe it's time to take a really serious, somber look at your life and see if you actually know the gospel, if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you've just simply been going to church for these years. John's words are poignant here, and we must seriously consider where we fall in this. He he goes on in this passage, and he provides us with a clear motivation for loving one another. It's clear, and it's an extremely blunt definition of what it actually means to love one another. Our second point from the passage is this. To truly love is to lay down your life and belongings for fellow believers. To truly love is to lay down your life and your belongings for fellow believers. The second half of the passage starts with one of the most famous verses in 1 John. It's the verse that the song the kids sang this morning uh, for us in that video. That's where that, ver- that song comes from. Um, and it's such a clear reminder of how the gospel affects our lives now. It provides us with the motivation to love and the definition of what love looks like. The verse tells us this. It tells us that Jesus' life and death should propel us to love one another sacrificially. The reality, the, the beauty of the gospel is we don't have a king who commands us to do things that he's not willing to do. We don't have a king who commands us to live in a way that he hasn't already lived. We don't have a king who, who can't empathize with us. The reality is that, yeah, his, his radical call to sacrificial love is intense. And at times it can seem incredibly daunting. But he doesn't call us to it alone. He walked in it before us. What Jesus gave up in the incarnation and the crucifixion is far more than we can ever comprehend. We would do well to dwell on his death more often. We would do well to look to the cross more often. But the problem is it's easier to look at ourselves and to the world around us than to keep our eyes focused on him. And when we look at the world around us, it's, it's easier to just despair or, or mock. It's easier to hate, be angry, or maybe just cry. <laughs> but that isn't what a follower of Jesus is called to do. In a commentary I was reading this week on 1 John, Robert Yarborough captured this idea poignantly as he, he compares a concept uh, that would have been from a similar time as when John was writing from the Stoics against what John says the Christian should be like. And as I read it, I, I was struck by how, uh, how specifically applied to our exact moment. He says, Seneca, writing approximately AD 50, frankly points out that hatred of the human race seizes us because of the corruption and foolishness we see on every hand. And <laughs> like, okay, this is sounding a lot like us right now, isn't it? 
dishonesty and stupid, uh, stupidity could easily foment despair. But Seneca suggests a better strategy. That's not John's strategy of love, but the Stoic strategy of contempt. Laugh, scoff, and be cynical. Man, that sounds like, sounds like what's going on right now. Anyway, he goes on and he says, Seneca's forthrightness is admirable, but John points to a better solution. It's easy to write people off, but believers are called to a road higher than either flippant ridicule or bitter resignation. And he goes on to say, rather than cynicism, John tells us, look to the cross. That's how we understand how to deal with other people, even difficult people, even people that to us seem stupid, even people who hate us. And when we look to the cross and we truly comprehend the sacrifice of Jesus for us, and we have no other option than to let our pride and our self-preservation melt away. And if he was willing to endure that, then I will happily endure anything for him. If he was willing to be humbled, though, get this, he truly is the only one who never deserves to be humbled. If he's willing to be humbled, then I can surely set aside my pride and, and, and humble myself so that I can love my brothers and sisters in Christ. If he was willing to be ridiculed by sinful man, even though he is pure, then I can humbly accept insults and hurtful words from other people. His death propels us to action. We would do well to look at the cross more often. After the sermon today, Kirk is going to lead us in a song that, that perfectly captures the sentiment of how, how the gospel love of Jesus should affect us. The words are this, the scandal of grace, you died in my place. Like it doesn't make sense, right? The scandal of grace, you died in my place so that my soul will live. And then it goes on and it says, oh, to be like you. I'd give all I have just to know you. See, the reality is that when we look to the cross, we will naturally love others. We would do well to look at the cross more often. John takes it one step further in these final verses, and he gets, I think, even more practical. Let me read those verses. But if anyone has the world's goods, and he sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Essentially, he tells us here that, that gospel love should be practical. And he even says that even if, if the practical love doesn't come through, then maybe you're not abiding in God's love. His point here is this, that abiding in the love of God will produce practical actions of love for fellow believers. Abiding in the love of God will produce practical actions of love 
for fellow believers. <laughs> I was thinking about it and, and, and my own conflict in this thing that I, I imagine many of you can relate to. I, I mean, I'm absolutely willing to die for my wife. But Jesus, are you telling me that I need to put my needs, sorry, <laughs> I need to put her needs before my own? I'm willing to, to, to die for the gospel. Maybe I'm willing to, to go be a missionary in a, in a foreign country, in, in a dangerous place, or, or stand up for my faith here, but you're saying you want me to open up my checkbook to help out a fellow Christian who's struggling? I'm happy to post encouraging words on your Facebook page. I'll pray for you. But Jesus, you're saying you want me to actually get down on my knees and pray for them? I'm happy to give a hug as someone gets ready to move away, but you're saying you want me to actually give of my time to help them move? I love talking to people in the gathering place after the service. I, I enjoy that so much, but, but, but Jesus, are, are you saying you want me to sacrificially give of my own finances, my time, my comfort? You're wanting me to put their needs before my own? Jesus, this all seems a little bit ridiculous. But then, we look to the cross again. And hopefully our response is, oh yeah, yeah, I, I'd do anything for the one who gave everything for me. We do well to look to the cross more often. We do well to dwell on what He has done for us. As we close, I, I can't help but read from Philippians 2. Paul says it far better than I could ever say it. Here's our motivation for how we live. I'm going to start in verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3, he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was the in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to keep at the forefront of our mind what you have done for us. I pray that that would be shaping us. Help us to take our eyes off of the discord that's happening around us and look to you and then help us to live that out in action. God, I pray for Bethany Church this morning specifically that we would enter into a season of uh, remarkable unity and love that we would care for each other, that we'd be willing to sacrifice for each other, that we would put down our defenses, we would put down our weapons, 
and that we would come together as one body, one people created in you, God. Even as we have differences of opinion, differences of thought, help us to be united around the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.